The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Okay, I'm on. Well, thank you for inviting me to this uh, conference. Yes, it is my first time in Canada, even though I'm a quarter Canadian myself. Uh, I actually do come from a fair way, as you can see from here. Now, I am a scientist by training as well. I used to shine laser light onto selenium ring molecules um, and analyze a spectra and, and publish in scientific journals, so I'm a real scientist. I'm also a, a, a scientist who believes the Bible as the most important thing, uh, like all the founders of modern science were believers in the Bible, which you don't hear much about in, in the ed- secular education system and the media system. I'm also ethnically Jewish, which means I can tell Jewish and French jokes and get away with it. My name is the Hebrew word for Frenchman, you see. <laughs> and I do play uh, chess from time to time, as you can see uh, from these pictures. So this is the blindfold that was being talked about. This is at, at one of the creation conferences um, a few years ago in Australia. Um, I played with some quite strong players in my time as well. Now, I I represent uh, Creation Ministries International, which has branches in Canada, uh, as well as uh, the US and Australia and New Zealand and and the UK and South Africa and Singapore, so quite a few different places. Our website is fairly easy to remember without taking notes. It's creation.com. And it's got over 7,600 articles. It's updated every day. Uh, to find out a bit more, we do have a free email newsletter, and we've got some sign-ups on the um, benches out the front here and also downstairs on our book table, uh, totally free. I'd recommend it because it will keep you updated into what's going on in the, on the creation site as well as creation speakers in your area. You know, things like the latest missing links being discovered or, or the latest thing with uh, Stephen Hawking, the, the physicist in the wheelchair who thinks he's explained uh, life without a creator. Yeah, but what, uh, what I'm talking about today is based sort of on the creation research, but I'm um, applying it to the challenge of, of bioethics and the relation to the, the family. But first, let's get the foundations right. Um, when Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken, and he would say, It is written, and quote, quote the Scripture to settle a point. Now, sometimes he would say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Now, that's referring to the oral tradition, which he didn't believe was inspired. But when he said it, was, it is written, this is the scriptures, and that was inspired, and that, was, that settled everything. Um, you can see that uh, uh, for him, the Bible was the basis of our thinking in every area, every area of life and everything it talks about. And you know what the word Bible stands for? Basic instructions before leaving earth. But the problem is um, people have got the idea of religion being separated by science. Science is supposed to be the uh, the opposite of Christianity, which is not the case in in practice because, in fact, science grew out of a Christian worldview. But when you uh, have our our young people going to school and university, you might get this sort of thing here uh, where you ask the professor, what's your opinion on science and the Bible? Well, they should be kept far apart because the Bible is about moral and spiritual things. Science deals with geology, biology, anthropology, astronomy. 
well, what's your opinion on the moral and spiritual things in the Bible? Well, they can't be true. Why not? Because science has its proof of geology, biology, anthropology, astronomy in the Bible. You see, uh, and that's the problem with uh, a lot of a church today is we've abandoned the Bible when it comes to its teaching on, on earth history as found in Genesis. But yet Jesus told us, um, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So if, if we don't defend the Bible in its teaching on creation of, of, of separate kinds of, of creatures and a, the reality of a global flood, how can we expect credibility when we talk about heavenly things like what does God expect of us for the family and for how to live our lives as well as for salvation. And it's interesting here is one of the rare Christian university professors around in a place which is a very anti-Christian environment and he says if Christianity dies in America and the same with Australia or Canada or the UK it will not be for a lack of evidence of its truthfulness it'll be for a lack of dissemination of the evidence of its truthfulness now when you have the other viewpoint which is that things made themselves instead of God making things which is the, the idea of evolution you have a problem because you have no real basis for right and wrong we see uh, a leading evolutionist saying this sort of thing let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear and I must say that these are basically Darwin's views there are no gods, no purposive forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I'm going to be completely dead. That's just all that's going to be the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. Yeah, so he is a leading evolutionist, and he is saying that if evolution is true, there's no ultimate basis for right and wrong which is a pretty serious uh, problem. And also he says there is no free will, which means he couldn't help saying that. <laughs> and just to see where it leads to, you have another evolutionist uh, exchange where um, Jacques Lanier says there's a lot of people uncomfortable with accepting evolution because it leads to what they perceive as a moral vacuum in which their best impulses have no basis in nature. And... Uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, who is the leading evolutionist today and a staunch atheist, said that's just stuff. We have to face up to the truth. So once again, you have this clear teaching, if evolution is true, then there's no ultimate basis for right and wrong. So this is one uh, area which has to be tackled if we're really going to change uh, for the, the family for the better to... Uh, defend the authority of the Bible and its teaching of the family, like, uh, for instance, one man and one woman. That goes back to the creation account. Jesus himself, when he was asked about a, a marriage, he goes back to the creation account. You know, he quotes, uh, as a, um, from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. Well, Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1:27 and 2:24, and as real history, and that is the basis of a marriage of a man and a woman. You see, if you haven't got that, uh, well, maybe God created Adam and Steve rather than Adam and Eve, and you've got uh, no, no basis for opposing the gay marriage issue. And it's interesting that the churches that abandoned Genesis are the ones who are ordaining homosexual ministers. 
There's no coincidence there. And then you might fall into this uh, trap of religion and not interfering with politics. Now, can you uh, identify this um, author and context when he says, things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade public life? Well, doesn't that sound familiar to you today? But you know where it comes from? This comes from Lord Melbourne, who was a defender of the institution of slavery against people like William Wilberforce, who were evangelical Christians trying to abolish this wicked institution. And, and, and the guys like the pro-slavers accused Wilberforce of letting his religion interfere with his politics. When you also see people like uh, Peter Singer, you see, Peter Singer is, is unfortunately an Australian living in America, and he's been given a personal chair of ethics, and he wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica article on ethics. Uh, but the thing is, he is a staunch atheist and evolutionist, because evolution underpins his atheism, and he is a staunch animal rights supporter. You know, he wants the human rights for great apes. But when it comes to human life, he supports all these things like infanticide, euthanasia, and bestiality. And he has just been consistent with his evolutionary ethics. And he, and he also invents this term speciesism, uh, supposedly as bad as racism or sexism, which actually um, um, makes the human species more important than any other species. So that's the problem with a lot of the animal rights activists. They want to have rights for the animals, but no rights for humans, uh, especially at the beginning or the end of life. Now, he can't even live his own um, perverted ethics because, in fact, when it came to his own mother, um, you know, he supports euthanasia in general for the elderly and sick, but his own mother has Alzheimer's, but he, was very, he spent lots of money keeping her alive. So he's fortunately a better son than he is a, a philosopher. Now, also, it's interesting to see Darwin's own foundation. Look at the, the title of Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. The subtitle was Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. And it's, not inter and it's pretty interesting to see how this worked out in the first um, half of the 20th century. Uh, for one thing, you have his cousin, Francis Galton, inventing the idea of eugenics, you know, the... Uh, First of all, trying to select the best people to breed, but also stop the worst people from, from breeding as well. So you've got the positive and negative uh, eugenics. And it's interesting that Darwin's own son uh, became the, the chairman of the first World Eugenics uh, Congress. So it's interesting that even um, one evolutionist said that the early eugenics movement sounded like a Darwin family business. And, and eugenics also became very popular in Germany um, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, even by the time of the First World War, there were very strong eugenics ideas. And even the German pacifist movement in World War I was a eugenicist organization because, you see, they didn't object to the killing in war as such. They objected to the fact that the war eliminated the best people. So it was actually death of the fittest people. The, great, the best soldiers we had were being killed. So it was actually going against their evolutionary uh, belief system. It wasn't the fact of, of the, the mass slaughter in, in the war. 
And after World War II, you have this uh, terrible development where you have a lawyer and a psychiatrist, Carl Binding and Alfred Hocher, who wrote a book called Allowing the Annihilation of Life Unworthy of Life. It was a terrible thing, but this was a sort of a book which was in the German academic culture where certain types of life were regarded as unworthy of life. And it's not surprising that we have a man writing four years later uh, adopting these sorts of ideas which were sort of permeating German culture and the media. Uh, and of course I refer to this man. And he says there must be no half measure. It's a half measure to let incurably sick people uh, steadily contaminate the remaining healthy ones. This is in keeping with a humanitarianism which, to avoid hurting one individual, lets a hundred others perish. And we have the Nazi eugenics uh, euthanasia program, Aktion T4, T4, I suppose, in Germany, um, and it went for two years at the beginning of World War II, and uh, about 250,000 people were killed with intellectual or physical disabilities. And this is a sort of consistency uh, with evolution, as even the British evolutionist Sir Arthur Keith said, the German Führer is an evolutionist. He has consciously sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory of evolution. And you see, even Richard Dawkins can't live by his own philosophy. Richard Dawkins uh, said he's a passionate um, Darwinian when it comes to science, but he's a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to morality. He says a, a society run by the evolution he teaches uh, would look like Hitler's. Interesting from a champion of Darwin. And very recently he's admitted that, I mean, uh, he um, realized that Christians aren't the ones who are, who are blowing up, who are sending flying planes into buildings or blowing up school buses. And he says, well, maybe by getting rid of Christianity, we've removed a bulwark against something far worse. So even uh, Dawkins, the hater of Christianity, recognizes that the Christianity has stood um, for civilization against uh, tyranny and terrorism. And of course, it's always stood for the rights of human life, from um, right from conception to natural death. And just to show you what that this is that was a teaching of, of Hitler. Here is a, a Nazi propaganda film showing the clear evolutionary basis for their eugenics and euthanasia program. Alles Lebensschwache geht in der Natur unfehlbar zugrunde. Wir Menschen haben gegen dieses Gesetz der natürlichen Auslese in den letzten Jahrzehnten furchtbar gesündigt. Wir haben unwertes Leben nicht nur erhalten, wir haben ihm auch Vermehrung gewährt. Die Nachkommen dieser Kranken sahen so aus. Erbgesunde Menschen wohnten in engen, lichtlosen Gassen und halb verfallenen Lauben. Idioten und Schwachsinnigen baute man aber Paläste und diese kranken Menschen waren gar nicht empfänglich für die Schönheit, mit der man sie umgab. Das deutsche Volk kennt das ganze Ausmaß dieses Elends wohl kaum. Es kennt nicht den drückenden Geist jener Häuser, in denen tausende lallende Schwachsinnige künstlich ernährt und gepflegt werden müssen die tiefer stehen als jedes Tier. 
In den letzten 70 Jahren hat sich unser Volk um 50 Prozent vermehrt, während die Zahl der Erbkranken im gleichen Zeitraum um 450 Prozent gestiegen ist. Wenn diese Entwicklung so weiterliefe, würde schon in 50 Jahren auf vier gesunde Menschen ein Erbkranker kommen. Ein endloser Zug des Grauens würde in die Nation hineinmarschieren, maßloses Elend über ein wertvolles Volk kommen, das dann mit Riesenschritten seinem Ende entgegenginge. Well, as you see, the, the clear the evidence of a strong overpowering a weak as a law of nature and the statements uh, of transgressing the law of natural selection, but in fact the Germans even stronger, the word gesündigt means sinned, uh, which means the same, but we have sinned against the law of natural selection. Well, and it's interesting that Darwin uh, claimed uh, uh, he talked about his deity natural selection because, of, uh, because what you sin against is divine. So in fact, it's replacing the Christian ethic of, of uh, that God is the one who sets the rules and he has set the rule of sanctity of innocent human life from conception to natural death. And this was replaced with this, uh, this counterfeit ethic of evolution where what's good for the uh, evolutionary progress is what has been, is the authority. If you want to see more on that, there is a, a video downstairs on the CMI table called Evolution and the Holocaust, which has that clip in it, so it might be worth having a look at, and again how evolution has uh, uh, infected the Holocaust, but a lot of the, the Nazi ideas are still permeating here, uh, like the, the growth of, of the euthanasia uh, movement. And of course, the, uh, the the wicked holocaust of the unborn, the abortion holocaust, and, that, and the problem with it was, as uh, uh, the uh, um, critics of, of Nazism, uh, the Nuremberg trials and such, recognised um, this problem. This is Dr. Leo Alexander, who was a doctor, an expert witness at the trial of the Nazis. And he, he said that what you have is, first of all, you have this attitude, there's such a thing as life not worthy to be lived. So one, that's a very bad thing to have, because what happens next is that you expand the sphere of those unworthy of life. Once you've got the, the, the camel's head and the, uh, the nose in the tent, then the, the rest of the body will soon get into the tent. And that's what he calls about the, the infinitely small wedge in lever was the attitude towards the non-rehabilitable sick. That was the first group of people not having uh, the right to life. In our culture, it is unwanted, wanted, unborn babies that have this, who are declared as not worthy of life. And also, there's a dramatization of the, one of the, the, uh, the war crimes trials, the judge's trial, and it was a film judgment at Nuremberg, and we had some quite a top star uh, cast, and uh, we had one of the judges, uh, the Nazi judges, uh, telling the, the uh, presiding American judge, um, you mu those millions of people, I never knew it would come to that, you must believe me. And the um, American judge said, it came to that the first time you sentenced a man to death you knew to be innocent. There's no way of preventing this horrible slide to, to, to mass murder. Once you start to admit there is something, um, any human life can be uh, sentenced just because of convenience. 
And uh, again, in America, where I'm now living, uh, by the way, um, I've been living there since April. I've got an American wife as well, so an American um, granddaughter, which is why she wants to be in America, of course. Um, better a nine-hour drive than a 20-hour, five-hour flight. And it's interesting, you see, you might remember the Scopes trial because that was um, 85 years ago, the famous Scopes trial with William Jennings Bryan, you know, uh, and you might have seen this uh, travesty of a film called Inherit the Wind, which is a complete distortion of the reality because, in fact, in the Scopes trial, uh, the, the, uh, the charge was teaching evolution from a book, you know, Hunter's Civic Biology, but what they don't tell you these days is, in fact, the ACLU, the, the anti-Christian organization in America, was teaching a book that taught white racism because of its evolutionary um, beliefs. It said there are, uh, at this time there are five races or varieties of man. And then he said the highest type of all, the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. So a very clear statement of white supremacy in this book, which they are so uh, clear, were so keen to defend. And we even have um, this book also advocating a eugenics program. The science of being well-born is called eugenics. Um, just as certain animals or plants become parasites on other plants or animals, these families have become parasitic on society. And there's a book called War Against the Weak, which documents even how America in the first um, three decades of the 20th century had a terrible eugenics program, uh, and they, that's when they instituted all these laws against so-called mixed-race marriages. And of course, if you have a biblical worldview, you'd know there's no such thing as race because we all come from Adam and Eve via Noah and his three sons. So there's only one human race as far as the Bible is concerned, but as far as evolution was concerned, they believed in five different races, and the white race was the highest of all. So they had these laws instituted against marriage across the so-called races. And then also had uh, forced sterilization of over 60,000 U.S. citizens. So there actually was a eugenics um, history in America, which is quite shameful. And also Australia. At one time, the, the Aboriginal people were regarded as missing links and were killed for display specimens. And even, see, uh, even the church uh, didn't um, support it in some cases because you have a, a Charles Darwin's friend, Charles Kingsley, said the Aboriginal people were not evolved enough to preach the gospel to them. Mind, there were some churches who defended the Aboriginals because they believed still they were descendants of Adam and Eve just as we are and had no problem uh, believing that they could understand the gospel because we're all related to Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, if you understand the biblical uh, perspective, but not if you understand the evolutionary perspective. Now, the, the, um, the, the attacks on human life are, are usually at the beginning and the end of our natural lifespan. Now, I'm going to first do the end of the natural lifespan, which is, of course, which is the uh, euthanasia program. And so this is a famous uh, Jack Kevorkian, the best-known guy in, um, in the States. Um, now, he actually served some jail time. I mean, he basically um, did all he could to put himself in jail almost because he, did, he had filmed the euthanasia, uh, committing euthanasia with his, with his machine. And, uh, well, since the evidence was on tape, they had no choice but to convict him. 
and he served eight years in jail. Now, it's very important to know that he never offered pain control. That's the thing. When you have uh, euthanasia, the, uh, the whole issue of palliative care just goes out the window. Because, I mean, uh, they regard it as easy that it's curing the suffering by killing the sufferer is the motivation instead of trying to relieve the suffering, which you can do in almost all cases. There's no need to suffer terrible pain uh, for the terminally ill, but Kevorkian never offered pain relief. The same uh, in, in Australia when you have the same um, euthanasia program, again, no pain relief. Or no, and some people in Australia have been killed who weren't even terminally ill. They just going through a temporary depression. And that's usually when people are going through a temporary depression because of their terminal illness that they, they might ask for euthanasia. Um, but uh, if, they, if the request is not granted, they recover from the depression and are very thankful that their request wasn't granted. So in fact, you're actually uh, killing people who are in the midst, uh, right in the pits of a depression, which is at the, the wrong time to be making decisions about life and death. Um, and he harvested, wanted to harvest organs from these, uh, these terminally ill people and advocated medical experiments on humans, which is just what the Nazis did in their death camp. Dr. Mengele uh, at Auschwitz uh, performed these horrible experiments on, on, uh, on human beings. And the thing is, um, he's actually not in very good physical shape himself, but he got released uh, for compa- on compassionate grounds from jail in 07 and is now running for uh, Congress as an independent. The thing is, he's actually in worse physical shape than a lot of his victims were. But as often these guys never lead by example. You know, the people who who uh, think uh, there are too many people in the world, you know, the, the overpopulation controllers, yeah... It's quite ironic. They say too many people, but they have lots of kids themselves and, and stay quite happily alive. I mean, Gore, Al Gore is one who is uh, you know, very much against uh, for population control, but he had four kids of his own. Okay, I think he did the right thing because we are told to go forth and multiply. I'm just showing that he is inconsistent with his own viewpoint. Just like uh, he, uh, a fanatical anti-global uh, you know, warmongering, but he flies on a private jet everywhere, you know. And it's interesting, unfortunately, um, he, um, he had a much bigger crowd than we do, unfortunately, uh, in Florida, University of Florida, 5,000 people in a talk advocating euthanasia. So, I mean, uh, among the academia and the media elites, often this idea of, of uh, euthanasia becomes very popular, again, except when it comes to their own, uh, their own lives. Now, here is a trap that people have fallen into um, because when, when the, the, eugenic, the euthanasia laws are trying to be passed, they try and assure the gullible public that there are safeguards uh, to prevent abuse. But it never happens that way. Whenever you've had euthanasia, a voluntary euthanasia allowed, it soon becomes involuntary euthanasia. In Holland, there are plenty of people who have been uh, killed against their will. And the problem with the safeguards is very uh, clear. They're not there to protect the vulnerable people, but to give false assurances and to make it easier to pass the laws. But then what happens, once the laws are passed, uh, then the safeguards are attacked as being too restrictive. 
or inconsistent, and then they're either ignored or overtly abolished, you see. So it's a, so it's a, a big con game. And here is uh, some people admitting uh, that it's a con game. One uh, advocate of euthanasia, you know, the Oregon in, in the U.S., there's one state that's passed a law allowing voluntary euthanasia, but this person says that there's a 15-day waiting period and it will be struck down as unduly burdensome, but in a legislative forum, you need to have measures to convince people that it's suitably protective, so you see a 15-day waiting period. So here's the admission from these people that, um, that it's only a con game to have these safeguards just to make the, the, lawyer, the, the lawmakers pass it. But then again, why should we be surprised? As I've pointed, as I said before, um, if evolution is true, there's no ultimate basis for ethics for right and wrong. So why should we be uh, surprised at dirty tactics by the atheists? It's consistent with their worldview to, to be dishonest in the way they, they pass legislation. It's not consistent with the Christian worldview to be dishonest, but it's perfectly consistent with the atheistic view. And yet, sad to say, so many Christians are surprised uh, by atheist dirty tactics. There's a book uh, called The Culture of Death by Wesley Smith, which talks about this, uh, this happening in America. And, and the same would apply to Canada. I found it useful for, uh, for the Australian situation, uh, which talks about the, the horrible euthanasia game and, and how it, it's getting worse and worse. Now, on the other end of, of human life, the life from conception... Evolution has again uh, played a big role. Like, I mean, if you can get rid of spare cats, why not get rid of spare kids if we were all just anim animals? And also, I mean, the abortion uh, mills will tell the, the girl it's only going through a fish stage. It's often based on these embryo diagrams. Heckel, who was one of Darwin's advocates in Germany, a good friend of Darwin, and basically a forerunner to a lot of the Nazi policies. And he drew these embryo diagrams pretty much the same. But, I mean, um, it, didn't take, it took so many years before um, embryologists looked down the microscope and found that they were actually very different from each other, not the same at all. So the actual drawings were basically using the same woodcut repeatedly, not because actually the embryos looked anything like that. So in fact, the Heckel drawings, which are found in so many different textbooks, are fraudulent, yet it suits the abortion industry, the, which is a you know, multi-billion dollar industry, to keep uh, this misinformation going so they can justify uh, this uh, butchery of the unborn. Now, let's see what the Bible says about it, since I'm supposed to be... Um, starting everything from the biblical viewpoint. Well, let's look at some logic here. It's a, a sound argument. It's a valid argument with true premises. And I'm talking about the true premises as revealed by the Scriptures. We see uh, here is actually a 4D ultrasound of an unborn baby in the womb. It's a real-time ultrasound uh, picture. You see he's a bit camera shy, which is why he holds his hand up against the, uh, the, the camera. Well, see, um, uh, abortion, by definition, is intentional killing of the so-called fetus. But, of course, I mean, a fetus is a medical ease term. And if you're going to call the unborn a fetus, call the pregnant woman a gravida, because that's also a medical term. Well, it doesn't make sense to be consistent. You are these medical terms for both the mother and baby or for neither. If it's mother and baby, or else it's gravida and fetus. I mean, you can't do well. It's not fair to do one without the other. 
And then you have very clearly um, the, the fetus is an innocent human being because life begins at conception. That is when you have the DNA from the father, half the father's DNA comes with half the mother's DNA, and the fertilization, you combine these two halves to make whole, and this new um, fertilized egg, the zygote, is a brand new human being that's never been seen before and will never be seen again. So right from conception, science tells us that you have a new human being. And there's also, it's an innocent. And in this sense, innocent comes from a Latin in nocens, which means not harming. It doesn't mean sinless. It means not guilty of any crime worthy of capital punishment. And also we have the definition of murder, which is intentionally killing an innocent human being. So, uh, and God forbids that in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit murder. That's what ratzach in Hebrew means, murder. So, from the Bible, we can deduce that God forbids abortion. doesn't have to say so uh, directly, but it's a, a deduction from these premises, which is hard to get around. And just to show you further, we've got biblical evidence for the humanity of the unborn, like you see, um, Rebecca um, is described, the mother of, of the, the Jewish people, and he says she, the, the children, or banim, which means the sons, the strun, sons Jacob and Esau struggled within her. Not these clumps of tissue, but the sons within her womb were described as sons, the, the normal word for sons. And we see a few other evidences here. In the New Testament as well, you remember this, this um, before uh, the after the annunciation of of uh, Jesus's birth to Mary. Mary went to see her kinsman Elizabeth, her cousin, and uh, that uh, Elizabeth was also pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. And basically, the the, the babe in, in Greek, the brephos, the same word for baby, ordinary baby, a newborn baby is called the brephos, and yet the same word is used as for the unborn baby leaping in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe, the breathless, left in my womb, left in my womb for joy. You see, so you have a fetal John the Baptist about six months of gestation. And yet Mary is already called the mother of my Lord, even though Jesus had just been recently conceived. So you've got an embryonic Christ who is, all, who is, is called the Lord right away, and Mary is, is called the mother of my Lord, even though um, Jesus had just been con uh, con uh, conceived, and John the Baptist was fetal and had leapt in the, in the womb uh, for joy. So you've got clear evidence of the humanity of Jesus himself and John the Baptist right from conception. So it's a very good thing that there weren't any abortionists around at the time. I mean, after all, Mary was conceived as an unmarried mother. That's one of the, the uh, main excuses for abortion is that the, the mother's unmarried and probably very young at the time, you see. Uh, and yet uh, our salvation wouldn't have been in, in jeopardy if an abortionist had had an abortion on, on Mary at that time. Um, but it applies to everyone else as well. Now, other evidence uh, for the un, unborn humanity, again, from the Bible, um, we have, um, you know, when, when Adam was created, he was called a soul or nefesh chayat, which means living, living creature, living soul. Now, when Adam was a special case, he was created out of the dust, and then God breathed on him, and he became a living, a living creature. So as soon as he's alive, 
that he has this soul. So soul it goes together with biological life. So as soon as biological exists, life exists, we have uh, the soul already there. You see, man is composed of a material aspect and an immaterial aspect, which can be called the soul or the spirit. I'm not going to get into too much about the dichotomy versus trichotomy argument here, but it's very clear from the Bible there's material aspect and there's immaterial aspect. Remember Jesus said, don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. You see, so the soul is an aspect that survives there, but it's, it's clearly present from the beginning of biological life. And we see in the Psalms, I was uh, in sin, my mother conceived me, not someone, something which later grew into me. So right from conception, it was me that was conceived. And again, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I, you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So even the, the unborn Jeremiah was already set apart and was known by God. So once again, the unborn Jeremiah is, should be killed. Uh, should, should not have been killed. It would be a horrible thing to kill the unborn Jeremiah. That would have been murdering the prophet, not a clump of tissues, uh, as the abortionists claim. Uh, then there's a, there are always these excuses as to, well, what about uh, abortion for rape? You know, all that sort of uh, nonsense. Um, well, in fact, I've, I've had contact with a lady called Rebecca Kiesling who was conceived by rape. So she's often said to people, are you saying that I should have been killed uh, before birth because of what my father did? And yet the Bible is very clear, uh, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. And that's what you're doing. If you allow abortion for rape or incest, you're, you're incest, you're punishing the baby for the sin of the father. The baby is innocent regardless of how it is conceived. So it is completely inconsistent and immoral to, to allow abortion for rape or for, for incest. And then uh, there might be the emotional blackmail of, of people who would say, well, I mean, how can you force a woman to bear this terrible reminder of the rapist? But I mean, let's face it, you've got the parents who have horribly messy divorce and they fight tooth and nail to keep their children, even though the children might remind them of this abusive partner they had. Uh, and this is the um, point that a real woman would actually do everything in her power to protect the unborn from harm. We think of also the, the great wisdom of Solomon, you see. Um, remember the first act of wisdom he did? You got two mothers fighting over one baby, and he said, well, chop it in half. Give one to each, each mother. And it was the real mother who said, please don't kill the baby. Give it to the other one. Don't kill the baby. So, I mean, the idea uh, that somehow uh, an adoption is a bad thing. Well, in fact, uh, we have the wisdom of Solomon showing that um, any uh, good woman would rather, prefer, would rather have a baby alive and adopted than butchered by the abortionist's knife. So then there's this uh, ridiculous idea, you know, which you see from you know, a lot of um, Democrat politicians. Well, I personally hate abortion, or I'm personally opposed, but... But then the question should always be, why do you hate abortion? I mean, if abortion is just like removing a tumor or a warp, there's no reason to hate it. The only reason to hate abortion is that it's killing a baby. 
But if it really kills a baby, then it's not just between a woman and her doctor. It becomes a matter of which should be protected by law. The law is supposed to protect the innocent from murder. And therefore, it is perfectly okay to support laws against killing babies. You know, and this uh, is, is rubbish about imposing your morality on an unborn, uh, on human being. You see, what they're really doing is um, imposing uh, the woman's convenience on the unborn baby. So, so, you see, all laws impose morality. It's only a question of whose morality is imposed. The unborn baby, I'm sure, doesn't like to have the, the, the morality of convenience imposed upon it, or really he or she, because he or she is known from conception. There's no it, even from conception. Yeah, I mean, you might say uh, that uh, the Democrat Party were historically pro-choice on slavery. You know, don't own, if you don't like slavery, don't own slaves. It's parallels. If you don't like abortion, don't have one. See, what's the difference? Um, one of my favorite books on, on the uh, right to life issue is by Francis Beckwith called Politically Correct Death. And it's interesting, um, also, there was once a, a pretty good president in America called Ronald Reagan, and he wrote a book called The Abortion, The Conscience of a Nation. He pointed out some very important things um, that we can't, again, what I've been saying, you can't diminish the value of one category of human life without diminishing the value of all, all human life. And again, some people will say, well, we don't, we don't know when life begins, but if you don't know, then you should still give the benefit of life. I mean, because if you shoot in the, in the bushes and while you're hunting, you're not sure if that movement was a deer or a man, you are responsible. If you pull the trigger and kill the man uh, accidentally, well, you're responsible because you didn't take care to find out whether it was human. You know, when you have the current president uh, saying that uh, where life begins is above my pay grade, well, once again, he should give the benefit, the benefit of doubt to life and not to death. I mean, if you've got a condemned building, you make sure there's no one in there. There's no point saying, I didn't know anyone was in there. You've got to actually make sure no one is in the condemned building before you blow it up. So it's, it's not enough to say we don't know life where life begins. To justify abortion, you'd have to know that it's not human life, and that's just scientifically and biblically impossible. And also, I mean, I've been uh, with, uh, uh, on an airplane, I was sat next to a fetal surgeon one day. He said the, the, uh, the, the heart's no bigger than a, a pecan, but he was performing operations on the unborn child as a patient. So the question really is, what value do we give for human life? Because really where human life begins is not disputed by science or the Bible. It's a case of what value you put on it. And uh, let's face it, once you start, uh, as I said, to, on regarding abortion as okay, there's nothing to stop infanticide coming up because there's, only a real, there's no real difference morally between the child after birth and the child before birth. And what you see, which is terrible in some hospitals, you might find, say, a 23-week-old baby being saved by all the, 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 the methods available, and down the, the, same, the hall of the same hospital, you're aborting a baby that same gestation. So they know very well what they're doing is killing human beings, and it's a case of their conscience being seared. Now, let's uh, do another common bioethical thing, which is about stem cells. 
Now, this explains stem cells, but this is sort of related to the abortion issue and the human life issue. Let's uh, talk about what they are. Well, the thing is, when the embryo develops, is the embryo has all the information necessary to build you what you are. You've, you've got your DNA, and there are about three uh, billion letters or three gigabytes of DNA information right from, from conception. But the thing is, when you, you, you grow from an embryo, you, this information has to be switched off. Because you don't want a, a bone sticking out of your eye. Now, your eye cells have the bone information, but it's switched off, so you don't get a bone coming out of your eye socket. You see, there's a very good pattern of switching off this information as, as the embryo develops. But the thing is, stem cells, uh, there are always a few stem cells around in the body, and they have much of this information still switched on, which is why they are quite versatile. They can develop into lots of different types of tissue. And you can think of things like a totipotent, which means it can develop into the entire organism, which is the, the fertilized egg, the embryo, is totipotent. Um, there are pluripotent, which can't develop into an organism, but they can develop into any part of an organism, but they lack the ability to, to form a whole organism. And multipotent just means they can develop into lots of different types of tissue, but not every different type of tissue. So you've got these... Uh, these um, three different types of stem cells. Now, let's have a look at some of the, the media claims here um, about embryonic stem cells versus adult stem cells, which are much better. Um, this person says embryonic stem cells possess more therapeutic potential, whereas research remains controversial and minimally funded by the federal government because current techniques destroy human embryos as stem cells are Extracted adult stem cells derived from such non-controversial cells uh, sources as umbilical cord, blood, bone marrow transform into fewer types of cells, but they sidestep the ethical issues that surround embryonic stem cells. Uh, so therapies based on adult stem cell research may have a speedier path to the multi marketplace. But this is a case of weasel words. <laughs> so analyze them properly. Um, Let's see, more potential, you see. It means they haven't found any actual uses for embryonic stem cells. It's all potential. And, and the thing is, why should it be funded by the federal government at all? Because, I mean, even if, if they could cure baldness, you'd have a plenty of a market for it, let alone all the other diseases that they could possibly cure. You wouldn't need federal funding if they actually worked. And, of course, they admit it destroys human embryos. So why not the adult stem cells, which actually work? And they don't kill babies. There's plenty of places where you can find adult stem cells, you know, hair follicles and cornea. I mean, recently, uh, you know, only a few, not very long ago, a lady in Spain had her, her, her windpipe almost totally destroyed um, by, by tuberculosis, and they actually used her own stem cells to repair her windpipe. They used a scaffolding of, of cartilage from a donor, but it was her own stem cells that repaired the windpipe. Also, cornea damage uh, in front of the eye, uh, they cured that by using, getting some stem cells from the other eye, the good eye, and use it to regrow corneas. So, so over and over again, we are getting so many different types of adult uh, stem cell uh, research. 
In fact, you can, you know, it's hard to keep up with them. I've got them. There's an article on creation.com. It's called the creation.com slash stem underscore cells, which, uh, which I'm trying to keep up with all the different research that's going on, but it's very hard to keep up because the adult stem cell research is go, growing all the time, and it doesn't kill babies. But then the president of the United States at the moment, he actually cut funding for adult stem cell research, the cells that actually work, and he increased funding for embryonic stem cell research, which hasn't had a single cure and cure it kills babies because the current president is an abortion extremist and the point is when you have um, a supposed good use for an unborn baby that will undermine the opposition to abortion because you actually can try and spin abortion as saving other people's lives of course in the Christian worldview is it not acceptable to destroy one human life to save another human life because it's still uh, committing murder. An example of, of how good stem cell research comes back from my own country, where you have uh, one adult stem researcher uh, awarded Queenslander of the Year because he used stem cells from the nose. And he, he said that the, these adult stem cell research uh, uh, cell, stem cells have the ability to develop into many different skin uh, cell types if they're given the right chemical environment. And they have, the same, they have the same ability as embryonic stem cells in giving rise to many different stem cell types, but have the advantage that they, they can be obtained from all individuals, even older people who might be most in need to stem cell therapies. So it's very interesting. And of course, the, uh, the advantage of adult stem cells, they're your own stem cells, so there's no tissue rejection problem. I mean, embryonic stem cells have the problem that could be re- the tissue rejection is a problem, and also they tend to grow into tumors as well. So they're pretty dangerous sorts of things, while the adult stem cells have, have, have um, proven cures and they actually have no side effects because they're the, your, your own uh, tissues. Yeah, this is the uh, sort of research that uh, Obama wanted to defund. It's also interesting, you know, Francis Collins is, is the, now the head of the... Uh, uh, of the National Health Institute in America. He's a rabid theistic evolutionist, and he supports embryonic stem cell research. So it's no accident that his belief in evolution has also corrupted his morality, so he believes in something as immoral as embryonic stem cell research. So the last thing I'll do is cloning. See, cloning is the creation of a living thing that's identical to the parent. You know, one form of natural cloning is twins, identical twins. They are a natural form of cloning. Now the advantage of, of this, remember the embryonic stem cell research has, the, has a problem with tissue rejection, but how do you avoid tissue rejection? Well, you make a clone of yourself. So it's genetically identical to you, and then you uh, harvest that clone for body parts. And there's a recent movie called The Island, which is all about human clones being developed uh, for, for body part harvesting or for having um, um, babies for an infertile woman, uh, and the clones were destroyed afterwards. It's, a pretty, it's actually quite a pro-life movie, this thing, because the clones were clearly humans, but even right from conception they are human. And you might talk about two different types. One is, is the reproductive cloning, where you're trying to take, uh, make copies of, of the adult. Uh, and by the way, uh, I... 
it's, it's not such a bad thing for animals because when it comes to animals and plants, man has been given dominion over creation. So in principle, um, I don't object to cloning animals and plants. As a case of I being with all new te- technology, there has to be more safeguards than, than, than people would like to think. But in principle, I don't think um, cloning of other creatures is wrong. But man was not given dominion over other man. That's not part of it. And if, when you, whenever you do um, this sort of experiment, you're actually taking dominion over people. And this grossly exceeds the dominion mandate and is therefore immoral to do cloning experiments for people. Uh, but in case, one argument against cloning is, well, what if you made a clone of Hitler? But a clone of Hitler mightn't be a Hitler, you know, because uh, he hasn't got the same environment. He's got his own free will. I mean, he... Um, he might become a, a, a lover of Jews for all we know. Just because he has the same genetics doesn't mean he's going to be the same uh, sort of evil person that Hitler was. And there's also the main thing, other thing is called therapeutic cloning. But that's, again, the weasel words because there's nothing therapeutic for the clone in being uh, harvested for body parts. Uh, but again, this is again, uh, the horrible thing about humans taking dominion over other humans. And there are problems with it too. Even scientifically is, is a problem because we have uh, Dolly the sheep. Now, the thing is, because were, she was cloned from an adult, she had the adult aging. You see, when, when, you, when you have children naturally, uh, what happens is your cell, the, the, the germ cells are regenerated. You have, uh, so you, your DNA is in chromosomes, little, little 23 pairs of chromosomes, but that's where your DNA is, and it has telomeres, which are protective caps on the chromosomes to protect decay. And when you have kids, uh, those caps are regenerated. But when Dolly was cloned, she already had the aged chromosomes and therefore had only half the lifespan of a normal uh, sheep because she inherited the age of her mother. So that that could be a problem with with cloning. And there are other plenty of, of problems too. So the, the thing is, the moral problem is the worst part of it uh, when you have um, humans taking dominion over other humans. But again, if these people don't believe in Genesis, they've got no basis to accept the, the dominion mandate. Now, I've got a few um, other resources on our, our table down there, like my three books, uh, which uh, undermine the evolutionary philosophy, which is behind a lot of the anti-family movement. Oh, this one uh, undermines evolution in the high schools. Uh, this one undermines evolution in the media. And this one undermines evolution in the churches, sadly to say. You know, some of the churches and theological cemeteries, I mean seminaries, uh, want to try to add evolution to the Bible. Um, another thing, book which I'd recommend to uh, all is uh, the Creation Answers book too because that, that answers about 60 or so questions uh, in 20 chapters. And you know, I've had lots of Q&A times in my time in Canada and around the world and most of the questions that come up are in this uh, Creation Answers book. And don't forget we do have this uh, free website, creation.com, with over 7,600 articles and there are articles on uh, the issue of of the human life, the abortion and euthanasia, and the history of Nazism and communism, as well as the defenses of the Bible as the word of God and things like dinosaurs, the flood, the fossils, design, radioactive dating, all the sort of basic creation 
material, but also the applications of creation and evolution. Uh, it's even got a homeschooling corner on it. So you see we've got a, a very family-oriented website too. So thank you very much for, for having me at this conference. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.